Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Peace, I'm sorry, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. What I want you to see here then, as I said before, that it is the duty for the people of God to be praying for an increase of all Christian graces one for another. For an increase of Christian graces one for another. And what I want to do is I want to set forth this passage of Scripture really in two broad strokes, if I can put it that way. I want you to see on the one hand the the very nature of the prayer that the apostle is praying. And as I said before, this is exactly what we have. What we have is in in its very nature, it is a prayer. It is couched in the form of common address, but in reality it is a prayer. And I want to set it before you as that. And what we'll do is we'll take a look at the prayer itself. It is a prayer for, as Peter says here, for the, multiplica- for the multiplication of grace and peace. It's a wonderful thought that grace and peace can be multiplied. And the reason why grace and peace can be multiplied among the people of God and not merely divided among the people of God, did you catch that distinction? Grace and peace can be multiplied and not merely divided. Well, you see, why do we say this? Because if grace and peace came from a finite source, they would have to be divided among the people of God. But since grace and peace both find their source in the God of all grace and in the God of peace, there is an infinite supply of grace that can be multiplied over and over again and it never runs out. You're glad, because, you're, you're glad of that. You know why you're glad of that? Because every day you go to work and every day you deal with your family and every day you deal with one another, you know that you need a multiplication of grace. And all the trials that come your way, you know that you need a multiplication of peace. And that's what we see in this passage of Scripture. Grace and peace being multiplied. So that's the first broad stroke that we're going to consider this morning. The second broad stroke that we're going to consider is the means by which grace and peace are multiplied. Yes, the means by which grace and peace are multiplied. And did you catch it in the passage of Scripture? Grace and peace be multiplied through the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus. Through the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus. What we're going to see here then in our second uh, movement, we might say, the second division of the sermon, is we're going to see that God has ordained that biblical knowledge, theological truth, true Doctrine is the means by which there can be an increase of grace and peace in the life of the believer. And I want you to spend some time thinking about that with me. I want you to realize and understand that Christian doctrine is not just for a select few within the church of Jesus Christ. I want you to know and understand that your knowledge of God is actually, if I can put it this way, and I like this little phrase, if I can put it this way, it is a force multiplier. What's a force multiplier? A force multiplier is something that you bring to bear when when it works in conjunction with other things. It not only has the power that it brings itself, but it multiplies that which is around it. And what I want you to see is that the knowledge of God is a force multiplier in the experience of grace and peace. And so I hope to set before you today this idea of what it is to grow and to advance in our understanding of biblical truth, to grow and to advance in our understanding of, even like we said in this first verse, that this, in this opening verse of Scripture we have set before us, 
this wonderful person of our Lord Jesus Christ who is both fully God and fully man. You see, that knowledge, the knowledge of that has not only an intellectual effect on your thinking as you metabolize that and take that on and as that becomes part of your thinking, it has a spiritual effect on you as well. So this is what we hope to do by God's grace today and bear with me as I begin to work through our outline then. Well, as I said before, the first thing I want you to see and understand is that the Apostle Paul is writing not merely a greeting here. It is a greeting, but he's writing, really, he is verbalizing a prayer for the people of God that he is writing to. And what's interesting to see is that, as I said before, I think every one of the New Testament epistles starts in a a very similar way. On some occasions, you might have grace, mercy, and peace. But over and over again, you have this desire that the people of God that are being written to would experience grace and peace. And we'll take a look at what each of these things are uh, doctrinally here in a moment. But the other thing I want you to be aware of and understand is this. If you study the Word of God, you may come across uh, commentators who many times will tell us things, pretty much like I've just said to you, uh, along these lines, that what the Apostle is doing here is he is just incorporating a normal way of expressing or a normal way of opening a letter. And they would remind us that very much like we do in our day today, the apostles did in their day. So when we write a letter and we say, dear so-and-so, how are you? We hope everything is fine. And then we get to the matter of the letter. As a matter of fact, listen to what one commentator says along these lines. In the beginning of his letters, Paul and also Peter maintains and elaborates the threefold form of greeting that is characteristic of the salutations of Hellenistic letters. In such letters in the papyri, which are writings that are taken from the the time in which the apostles wrote, the greeting usually gives the, the, the name of the author, the recipient, and some form of the word grace. Paul follows this pattern in Colossians and in other epistles. Um... And it follows this Hellenistic practice of indicating the relationship between the writer and the recipients by means of the greeting. And so again, the opening verses in almost any one of the epistles are going to incorporate what some would say or what some would tell us are just a very normal way of writing. I think that's a very insufficient way of approaching a text of scripture. And I'll explain that as I go on. But I do want you to be aware of the We make no qualms. Uh, Paul is incorporating uh, the standard practices, excuse me, Peter is incorporating the standard practices of of his day. As a matter of fact, even when we look into the Old Testament, we we find something very interesting, very similar to what we're hearing Peter writing, but but it's coming from two pagan kings. Listen to to these two passages of scripture. Daniel Daniel chapter 4 verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. Well, this is very similar to what Peter's writing, is it not? Peace be multiplied unto you. Another king in Daniel, Darius. Then King Darius wrote unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. What are we seeing here? The kings, both of these kings, are using the standard form of address in writing a letter. Now, does that mean when we come to the words of the apostle that all we have here is a standard form of address that is given in any kind of letter? Let me say this to you. I think if we come to that conclusion, we are coming woefully short of the intention of what the word of God is all about. Because when we have, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, an apostle writing to us grace and peace, there is, in that very expression of grace and peace, there is a prayer that's being uttered. 
And this prayer that is being uttered in one sense becomes a pattern for us. So that if I can put it this way, not only are we hearing grace and peace from the, from the pen of an apostle upon the church of Jesus Christ, we are also having a pattern for how ministers ought to be praying for their people. So that when a minister prays for a congregation, it is for the increase or the multiplication of grace and peace in their lives. An increase or a multiplication of grace and peace within a congregation. And when you take up praying for one another, you pray for the spiritual well-being of one another. You pray for a multiplication of grace in your spouse. You pray for a multiplication of grace in those that you must deal with. You see, these are the things, these are, this is the pattern that's set before us. And so, and so while we will not ignore that Peter is using what many would call a common, sta- a common form of introduction in a letter, it's much more than that. You see, this is the word of God to us. And when we have Darius or when we have Nebuchadnezzar expressing peace, can I put it this way? It's only the peace that he as a king, although a powerful king, can give. But when God reveals himself to us as the God of peace and the God of grace, do you see the inexhaustible supply? Do you see now why grace and peace can be multiplied? Oh, wouldn't you be, wouldn't it be, very, wouldn't it be a great blessing to have some, uh, some individual of great power in the world say to you, peace be multiplied? How much more when God says to you, peace be multiplied? Amen. And so in all the tribulations and all the turmoils of your soul, hear this greeting in the form of a prayer, peace be multiplied. And all of your difficulties and all your trials and situations you understand. You're in situations that are above your head. You're in situations where the water's going up above you. You're in situations where you can't get no solid ground. Understand, grace can be multiplied to you in that situation. Oh, why would you not call out for grace in moments like this? You see, grace and peace is multiplied to the people of God. Let me read you something here that I have. We see this, we see this in, uh, in the letter that Peter writes as well. Again, this idea of the common form of introduction. But what I want to stress is not that he uses a common greeting. Now listen, please. But that God's holy purposes are often couched in very normal and usual circumstances. For I am convinced that Peter is not merely saying, dear so-and-so, but instead he is couching the standard Christian, he is couching in the standard Christian greeting a prayer for his readers. A prayer that is given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. A prayer that is not only an example of how apostles pray for those that they write to, but a pattern for how a minister is to pray for the people of God under his charge and how the people of God are to pray one for another. But did you catch that, 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 that little phrase? That oftentimes God works and what we would, he, he couches his grace and his peace in the normal circumstances of life. Amen. It's an amazing thing to see, isn't it? Many of you, I guarantee, came to faith in Jesus Christ in what would be considered to be relatively normal circumstances in life. How many of you saw a light and were struck off of a horse when you got saved? But how many of you dealt with a friend or a family member, spoke to you about the gospel, and maybe certain situations finally clicked? It wasn't even necessarily a religious idea that clicked, but something clicked. I'm almost embarrassed to say how I came to faith in Christ in a certain sense. I was in the Navy. And there I was. I had some, some they weren't even friends. They were, they, were, they were fellow sailors on the ship. And there was, I have to believe, there, I mean, there was, there was a really interesting work of God going on at the time. A number of guys were getting saved at the time. It was kind of a, it was a strange thing to see. 
But anyway, I remember these men very patiently witnessing the gospel of Jesus Christ to me and me trying to clean up my life and maybe start to live more religiously, them reminding me that this is all of grace and it's not anything that I do. And I remember laying in my bunk thinking, having this in my mind, this picture of a boxing match. Now, this is not evangelism. Don't evangelize this way. <laughs> having in my mind this boxing match. And there was, there was the Lord Jesus Christ and there was Satan. And I'm looking at this thing in my mind, and I said to myself, the only problem with this picture is that Satan has the home field advantage. And I thought to myself, I'm going to give Jesus the home field advantage. Well, for me, in that very like natural way of, for me of thinking as a, as a young 20-year-old man, that's what, that was the image or the picture that led to an embrace of Jesus Christ by faith. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't evangelize that way. I'm all, again, that's not how you evangelize. You evangelize by preaching the gospel, by setting before sinners the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God may use some normal circumstance. He may couch in normal, everyday experience the supernatural calling of the sinner to salvation. You see, God often works in very normal ways, doesn't he? But in those very normal ways, oh, does he oftentimes speak. And you see, I believe that's, what ha- that's what's happening here. Peter is using a normal greeting, but oh, there's much more than a normal greeting going on here. We have an apostle praying for those that he is writing to. We have a pattern for how a minister ought to pray for his people for the increase of grace and peace. We have a pattern for how the people of God ought to pray for one another, that the spiritual blessings of Jesus Christ would be multiplied in our lives. And so again, the first thing we have here then is this prayer in the form of a greeting uh, for the people of God. Now, the next thing I want you to see is this. Let's take a look at the matter of the prayer. Again, notice what Peter says here. Grace and peace be multiplied uh, unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace be multiplied. Well, these are the two foundational blessings of the Christian life, are they not? Grace and peace. As a matter of fact, when we take a look in all these openings, uh, all these introductions in our letters, what we find over and over again, whether it's grace and peace, whether it's grace, mercy, and peace, grace always proceeds in whatever the introduction is. And that's not just by force of habit. There's something theological being said there. And what's being stated there is essentially this, that there can be no secondary blessing of God coming to us without the primary blessing of grace. Grace is the way in which God deals with sinners. Grace is the very means by which he makes known his his purposes. Grace is that wonderful operation of God whereby out of his own bounty he freely gives of himself to whatever the need of the sinner is. And so there you are in need of salvation. And what does God say to you? Do such and such and I'll do such and such. Does God say to you, you give me a little something and I'll give you a whole lot back? Does God say, you give me a little bit of faith and I'll give you a whole lot of righteousness? No, God comes to you in grace and he pours out grace and he makes the whole operation by way of grace. And even though you truly believe and even though you truly repent, when you come to your sanctified thinking, you look back and say, even my faith was a gift of God. What a gracious God this is. You see, what we see then is that there, this whole operation of the Christian life is an operation of grace. What is grace then if we were to look and try to get some, something of a formal definition on the table? What is grace then? Well, very simply, we can say this about grace. Grace is the receiving of a sinner into the covenant of mercy, that is, into God's favor by, by Christ. That's basically what grace is. We can go a little further than that, though, and we can say, we can go, uh, and say the following. 
When used in the Bible to set forth the grace of God and the salvation of sinners, the word grace discloses not only the boundless goodness and kindness of God toward man, but reaches far beyond and indicates the supreme motive which, which actuated God in creation, preservation, and consummation of the universe. What greater fact could be expressed by this one word, grace? Grace, again, is that abounding of God's kindness, that abounding of God's love, that abounding of God's mercy. I think one of the best pictures of the concept of grace is, is, is found in the passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 5, uh, verses 8 through 10, where Paul writes that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a, this is a wonderful picture of grace for the following reasons. Number one, and understand this about grace. Grace is not just you getting what you don't deserve. Grace is you receiving the favor of God when you specifically deserve his wrath. And that's what we see about grace. While we were yet sinners, you see, I deserved the judgment of my, on my sins. But while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. And in the embrace of Jesus Christ by faith, this operation of grace comes in a very real way. So again, as, the, as we see over and over in the, in the scripture, for by grace are you saved and that not of yourselves. Oh, how we thank God for this gift of grace. This reminds us of the fact that since it is the grace of God that saves us, and since it's the grace of God that the Apostle Peter is praying to be multiplied upon us, I want you to understand, like I said earlier, this grace of God has a limitless, reason, has a limitless source. It is built in the very infinite, it springs from the very infinite nature of God. As I said before, it's very interesting. We, we see in the scripture all these, uh, all these uh, like math terms. You know, we have addition. We have, we have the spirit of God dividing severally among who we will. Uh, we have, we have the, the taking away of things. We have uh, here being multiplied. And as I said before, the reason why grace and peace can be multiplied is because they have this infinite source in the very nature of God himself. And so the grace of God is limitless, unrestrained. It is the unrestrained love of God for the lost. <clears throat> acting in full compliance with the exact and unchangeable demands of his own righteousness through the sacrificial death of Christ. Grace is more than love. It is love set absolutely free and made triumphant, made to be a triumphant victor over the righteous judgment of God against the sinner. Now we have to be careful here a little bit because there's a sense in which God's, God's uh, grace is coming. It's not as though, it's not as though uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is wrenching out of the nature of God some kind of gracious response to us. No, grace is initiated by God. It is God initiating the work of salvation. But again, this idea of this limitlessness, this boundlessness to the uh, grace of God. Again, it is just such a, it is a wonderful, wonderful uh, reality that's set before us. And so that's grace in its definition. Grace, grace in its doctrinal aspects are very important. And there's a sense in which God sets forth his own nature to become the foundation of all of our doctrinal understanding of grace. We see this in the Old Testament uh, in Exodus chapter 34. We read Exodus uh, 33 this morning, but Exodus 34 verses uh, 6 through 7, very similar passage reads as follows. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty. This is a foundational passage. As a matter of fact, this passage of Scripture is repeated seven, seven other times in the New Testament. It becomes, in one way, the building blocks of all of the uh, understanding of God in the Old Testament by way of His gracious character. 
the Lord God gracious and, and, and kind, showing his favor. This is your God. And this is the God that Peter prays to, to in order that grace, his grace may be multiplied unto you. Oh, how we thank God for his grace. So we see the, so as I said before, we see the doctrinal aspects of the grace of God. We also see, uh, again, the, the, relations, the relational aspects of the grace of God. There is, in the, there is in the very nature of God this freedom, not only by way of grace, but also in the exercise of his grace. This, I have to say, this is something that always gives us a certain amount of pause before God's holy and majestic character. There is a sense in which as we begin to multiply all these concepts of the grace of God and what it is in his nature, how he, how he, how he over and over again shows himself to be gracious, the one thing that we see emphasized in Scripture in at least two places very clearly, the one thing that we see is that there is sovereign freedom associated with the saving grace of God. Now this gives us pause. This places us in the position of a Job where we place our hands over our mouth and we say to God to be who he is. The passage of scripture I'm referring to is, is, is Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. We read it this morning. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. There is a sovereign freedom in the nature of God that expresses his grace to whoever and whosoever he chooses to show. Now we know at the level of human interaction with the gospel, I'm going to say that again, at the level of human interaction with the gospel, we know that every promise of God can be responded to. And every promise of God that is responded to in the affirmative, God receives and God, and, and, and God converts blessing upon that. But at the level of God's divine nature, God will be gracious to whom he will be gracious when I taught through uh, uh, the book of Romans in Romans chapter 9, verse 15, I had, to, I, had, I, I had to preface the study by saying this, whatever else we know about God and whatever else you know about God, understand God will not be without this truth. And what is that truth? Sovereign freedom in the exercise of His grace. He will be merciful to whom He will be merciful. He will show grace to whom He will show grace. Now again, as I said before, don't let that jam you up. You are responsible to God at the level of the revelation He makes to you in the Word of God. There are secret things in the nature of God that we can't fully fathom, but we can worship. We can worship a sovereign God. We can worship a majestic God. But we must obey in a revealed God. Do you understand the difference? And in the Gospel, He reveals Himself to you. And what does He say? Ho, oh, everyone that thirst, let Him come and take of the water of life freely. And so you see, again, this idea of what grace is. Yes, in its doctrinal aspects, we have to understand that grace is still within the sovereign confines of God's own nature. Not only doctrinally, not only relationally, but we see that salvation in the very Christian life, if I can put it this way, the Christian life exists within the atmosphere of grace. Grace is the very atmosphere in which the Christian life is lived out. So that we come to God by grace. We live out by grace. And there's a sense in which grace never imposes upon the individual an obligation to repay. That would not be grace. But what grace does do is this. Grace so transforms that it causes one to live out a life that God has planted within. Oh, what difference there is. 
It's not me paying back to God what God has done for me. It's you and I living out what God has planted within. And you see, what, the way we do this is by the multiplication of grace. Oh, how we need grace multiplied in our days. How we need to see more and more of the grace of God. And aren't you glad that it's there to be multiplied, not merely added to. It's there to be multiplied. Oh, the grace of God, how we thank God for it. And the other thing that we see about grace is that grace is a victorious conqueror. Again, we read in Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I love the picture. There you are, seeing the way on the shore, seeing the waves come in, one wave after another, and it seems like sin is just increasing, the trespass is increasing. But then on the horizon, what do you see? You see this great a tidal wave coming in. And that's the picture. Grace, excuse me, sin may be coming in over every wave, every wave, more sin, more sin. But here comes grace as a tidal wave. Oh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, the grace of God revealed in the gospel, how we thank God for it. And not only that, but grace is the expression of the work of God in us. In other words, grace transforms And so we look at grace by way of its definition. We look at grace by way of its doctrinal development. We look at grace by way of its its character in the nature of God. But there's one more way that we can look at grace. And we can look at grace through the experience of the one who writes to us about this grace. Stop and think who's writing this. It's Peter. You remember Peter. Our dear friend Peter. Peter with all of his shortcomings. Peter with his failures. Peter hearing the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter lovest thou me. Peter, lovest thou me? Peter, lovest thou me? You see, grace tracks down the people that God intends to save. Grace tracks down the people that God intends to use. And I'm sure on that day, Peter would have thought, Lord, just let me be your disciple. But what does grace do? Grace was multiplied on that day, wasn't it? Because grace, the person of our Lord Jesus Christ said to Peter, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Oh, grace superabounding. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that it can be multiplied? And so again, you see here then this idea of Peter, excuse me, of Peter again expressing again in a very normal, in a very normal opening to a letter. Oh, how God couches the wonders of grace in the in the ordinariness of life. The wonders of grace in the ordinariness of life. That's where grace is. If I can use this illustration. I was uh, at, the, at, at the prison. Uh, some of you, most of you know that uh, I do volunteer work at the prison. And, and sometimes uh, they usually give us very free reign. Um, I've always been very appreciative of the fact that nobody's ever asked to see my notes when I go in. Uh, nobody's ever, um, you know, evaluated what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. Very, very, very open policy there. But there are times when there are certain restrictions placed uh, on what you can do and what you can't do there. And I remember saying to uh, one of the directors there that uh, basically whatever the limitations were, that you know, if I have to work within those limitations, I'm going to work within those limitations. But what I was going to do is I was also going to look for grace in the cracks. And they were like, well, what do you mean by grace in the cracks? I said, well, go if you go out into the parking lot and you see the parking lot is all blacktop, but if you look in the cracks in the blacktop, what do you see? You see grass growing up. Well, that's grace in the cracks. 
And when the things of life seem to place upon you all kind of restrictions, you can't do this and you can't do that, look for grace in the cracks. It's there, my brothers and sisters. Why? Because grace multiplies. It's there. Why? Because God is the God of all grace. It's there. Why? Because in those very ordinary situations of life, God is working out his extraordinary means. And so again, this idea of grace. Well, we come to peace now as well. And again, if grace is the foundation of all of God is doing for us, peace is the effect of that. What is peace? Well, we can, we can define peace in a number of ways, and I'll, I'll define peace somewhat, uh, somewhat generically here first. And uh, what I would say by way of peace, and I thought I had this uh, written down, and I know that I do, but by way of peace is essentially this, is that peace is that tranquility or stillness of mind when everything by way of our relationships and circumstances are rightly ordered. Peace is that state of mind, that stillness of mind, that tranquility of soul, when our relationships and circumstances are rightly ordered. Now, oftentimes we know that it is our relationships that take away our peace. It's our work relationships. It's our family relationships. It's relationships that, like, why is he looking at me that way for? You know, it's those relationships that maybe don't even mean much to us, but they just kind of throw us off. Circumstances. Again, we have days where nothing goes right. We have days where everything we touch just seems to fall apart. We have days where, again, it's just a very... And again, those things seem to take away our peace. But again, this idea of peace in a generic way is that peace is that, again, that, that stillness of soul, that tranquility of soul when relationships and circumstances are, are ordered rightly. Well, again, biblically, it's, it's a little different. It's, it's much the same, but it is somewhat different. And it's different along these lines. In the scripture over and over again, while, while human relationships and peace within our human relationships are given great stress in the scripture, what is given priority in the scripture is our relationship with God. And so when you think about peace, you must understand this. We cannot forget the horizontal dimensions of peace, but we must prioritize the vertical dimensions of peace. And the most important element in peace is found in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the great proclamation of the scriptures is that sinners, you and I, can have peace with a holy God. A God who has every right to judge and a God who will judge sin. Yet a God who offers peace through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, how thankful we are for peace. And as I said before, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, God is referred to as the God of all, as the God of all grace. Well, I think there's four times in the, in the New Testament where God is referred to as the God of peace. Over and over again, this emphasis on the God of peace. And so again, there's, there's, there's peace at a, at a horizontal plane. There's peace on a vertical plane. There's peace on an inner plane as well, isn't there? Well, you know what it is to have the peace of God. You know what it is to have, again, that tranquility, not only of soul, but of spirit and of mind. To a yes, everything is topsy-turvy all around you, but there is an inner peace that God is speaking to your soul. This is what Paul means when he says, let the peace of Christ rule and reign in your hearts. Oh, what a wonderful thing that is when the peace of Christ rules and reigns in that way. And so again, all these things we see by way of this, by way of this prayer of the apostle. Well, let me ask you this. Would you please pray for your pastor for grace and, and peace? Could you please expect that I would pray for you for grace and peace to be multiplied? I want to see God bless you physically and in every other kind of way. But oh, how I long to see God bless you with this idea of grace and peace. 
grace and peace that suit you up for any circumstance you might find yourself in. Again, grace and peace not merely being divided among the people of God, but grace being multiplied among the people of God. And that's what, the, and that's what Peter pray, prays here. He prays that, that this grace would be, would be multiplied. Now, it's interesting that when we look at this, uh, at this word, again, the, the right and the proper way to understand it is, uh, through, is with the idea of being multiplied. But there are, <clears throat> there are a number of uh, uh, translations that set this, uh, that set this idea uh, before us in a number of different ways. And again, these translations are all what I would call secondary translations. They're, they're not really, um, uh, you know, the, the four or five major translations that we would look to. But there, there, there is a nuance in the word here that I do want you to catch. Again, the King James, the ESV, the, the New American Standard Bible uh, all have grace and peace be multiplied. But listen to some of these other, as I said, nuances here. One, one translation says this, May grace and peace ever be increasing in you. Wonderful thought. Another, may good will and peace fill your lives. Another, may the divine favor and felicity be poured out upon you. Another, may more and more grace and peace be granted to you in the full knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. What do we see happening here? Well, what we see happening here, brothers and sisters, is this, is that your grace and your peace, the experience of that can be increased. I think there's a sense in which divine grace is divine grace, divine peace is divine peace, but oh, there's the, there's the giving of that, we might say, and then there's the experiencing of that, is there not? And I think when Peter is praying that these things be increased, maybe he's speaking of a quantitative increase by way of the Spirit of God into the soul. He may be speaking about that, but I also think that he is speaking as much as a qualitative increase that I know more of the peace of God by way of experience. I know more of the grace of God by way of experience. Oh, may the grace and peace of God be multiplied unto you. Well, we can stop here today, but we're not, because now we have to come to the means by which this spiritual blessing is brought out. And Peter says this, grace and peace be multiplied through the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what I want you to see here is this. This idea of the multiplication of, of, of grace and peace comes to us in a specific way. And this is important for us because... This is important to us because we all have probably encountered very well-meaning um, teaching, and I'm not necessarily ready to critique it, but we've come across very well-intended teaching that has set before us the means by which we can, quote-unquote, draw closer to God. And I'm all in favor of drawing closer to God. I really am. But I want you to see that God gives away. The means by which grace and peace are increased is through the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus. You have to understand that there is a purposeful emphasis on biblical doctrine as the basis for the increase of spiritual life within the believer. That there is a purposeful emphasis on way of biblical truth as being the building blocks of your advancing and your growing in the Christian faith. <clears throat> is contemplation important? It's very important. Is meditation important? It's very important. Is, uh, is, is getting together with the people. It's, it, all this is very important. But the means that we see given to us in this passage of Scripture is through the knowledge of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. 
Now, the word knowledge that Peter uses here is a, is a word that some of you may be familiar with. Uh, some of you may be familiar with uh, the idea that in, in the Greek New Testament there are different words for knowledge. And the one word that Peter uses here is uh, the word epinosis. And oftentimes it's, it's contrasted or compared with another Greek word, uh, which is the word gnosis. And the question is asked, well, is there a difference between the two? And what is the difference between the two? Well, first let me say this. In, in some circles, it's, it's, uh, it's much emphasized that the difference between epinosis and gnosis. The gnosis is a form of, uh, of knowledge. Epinosis is, a, is an intensified form of knowledge. And that is essentially true. But there are other times when we see these two words used in something of a, of a, of a synonymous or a parallel way. So that the writer of the scripture is not intending any kind of increased significance. But in this passage of scripture, I think that Peter is purposely using the word the more the fuller word here, epinosis, <clears throat> to convey the idea of, of, of knowledge which is more clearly apprehended of knowledge, and I hate to use this phrase, but of knowledge which is deeper seated within the soul. And the reason why I'm saying that is because this epistle is not only about the proper understanding of what the Christian life is, this epistle is also dealing with false teachers in chapter 2, mockers in chapter 3, and then the, uh, the, the uh, <clears throat> how can I say it, the exhortation to grow in knowledge in, 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 in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. <clears throat> and so I do think that it is right to see a particular emphasis being given in this passage of Scripture on that one word, epinosis. And so what we see here again is this emphasis on the type of knowledge that the apostle is speaking about. And so again, I want you to see that. And I want you to understand again, this is the purpose. What Paul is, excuse me, what Peter is doing here, he is setting before us what many have referred to, and I do want to refer to this, what many has referred to as the priority of biblical doctrine being used for the increase of the Christian's experience. We see this in passages of scripture like 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Timothy 2.15, 2 Timothy 1.13. What are we seeing here? We're seeing the priority given to the word of God in the development of the Christian life. 2 Timothy 3.16, we preach from this. Again, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. What's the word of God given for? It's profitable for doctrine, for that assessment of truth, for that bringing together of the, divi- of the divinely revealed truths concerning the nature of God. And your understanding of those truths increase your experience of grace and peace. 2 Timothy 2.15, again, the importance of rightly dividing the word of God, making sure that our doctrinal formulations are truly reflecting the emphasis of Scripture. You know, so, so many times when we, when we come to our doctrinal disagreements, essentially what happens is this. Either we or those that we are engaging with take a secondary passage of Scripture and give it primary importance. We have to be careful that we don't do that. One of the things that we struggle with or deal with is that we are dealing with a text, with a book that is full of authoritative text. In other words, every text has the authority of God behind it. But when we come to develop doctrine and deduce what and to deduce what God is doing, we have to make sure that we prioritize what God prioritizes. Again, that passage of scripture in Exodus 33, quoted seven other times in the Old Testament, it becomes a foundational passage as to who God is by way of his grace. You see, these are the things. And that's why Paul will say to Timothy again in, in 2 Timothy 1.13, hold fast to the form of sound words which you have heard of me. The form of sound words which you have heard. 
You see, they weren't just words given in a vacuum. They were, there was a particular form to those words. There was a particular, particular prioritizing of certain truths. And so we see, again, this, again, helps us to understand the importance then of doctrine. And what this brings us to then is a very important and something of a well-known concept, which is called in Christian circles, the means of grace. The means of grace. I don't know how familiar you are with this idea, the means of grace. But in the development of Christian theology, this phrase has been used to convey the following ideas. And this, this definition is, is taken from, um, is taken from uh, Charles Hodge. He says this concerning the means of grace. These are the institutions which God has ordained to be the ordinary channels of grace. In other words, the influences of the Spirit of God upon the souls of men. And what these means of grace, by way of their outward and ordinary means, are as follows. Number one, they are the Word of God. Number two, it includes prayer. Number three, it involves the ordinances of the church. Now, what am I doing here? Why am I getting so-called, so to speak, bogged down in this? Again, I, I, I want to convey something. I don't want to just excite you about the multiplication of grace and peace, as important as that is. I want you to see that in this passage of Scripture, if I can use the word embedded in the passage of Scripture, are what we have deduced or formulated as, quote-unquote, the means of grace. In other words, for the increase of your spiritual life, God has ordained certain means. The primary means is His Word. Second, we see prayer. Third, we see the ordinances of the church. So if you are to grow as a Christian, your growth as a Christian... And I say this humbly. I'm not trying to press anything on you. But your growth as a Christian will be very much taken up in the public life of the church. You will gather for the worship of God. Why? It's a means of grace that God has ordained. You will come to the preaching of the word. Why? Because you like or don't like the preacher? No, because God has ordained it through the proclamation of the word of God. Faith will be heard and faith, excuse me, faith will be given and faith will be increased. It's through the ordinances that God visibly sets before us the promise of the gospel. Have you ever thought of the ordinances that way? Have you ever thought of the Lord's Supper that way? That in a visible form, the Lord Jesus Christ didn't give us a picture. He didn't didn't give us a snapshot, so to speak. But he gave us, again, the symbolism of his life being given for us, of his body being broken, of his blood being shed. And all those who look to that broken body and that shed blood for the forgiveness of sins, it will be spiritual nourishment to their souls. You see, pictured for us here, not a snapshot, but pictured in these ordinances. And that's why, again, as I said before, the word of God, prayer in the ordinances. Now, again, this is in no way to, to, to in any way dissuade you from your, from your uh, private devotions, uh, from your reading the Word of God. You know that 15 minutes a day, 15, 20 minutes a day will get you through the Word of God in a year. You know that if you take up about six or seven uh, chapters in a day, you can do that probably in a half hour, 40 minutes. You'll read the Bible through in, uh, twice in a year. And isn't the Word of God worth that? Isn't the Word of God worth that kind of time? And what benefit will be to your soul and those, come around, and those that are around you when you have the Word of God dwelling in you that richly? Times of prayer. Again, how we need prayer for one another. Peter can't even start a letter without dropping into a prayer. Paul can't even start a letter without dropping into a prayer. So you see again these ordained, <clears throat> these ordained means of grace. And so what I'm setting before you then 
is what Peter's saying. That the increase, the multiplication of grace and knowledge comes by the means of grace. And the particular means that he is emphasizing is the word of God. But I want you to see something else here. And I'll try to make this quick. But this is, in one sense, maybe the most precious point of all. Did you notice what Peter says here again? Verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now last week we emphasized that in verse 1, the two descriptive words of God and Savior were referring to the one individual, the person of Jesus Christ. And grammatically, that goes to show that those two designating terms are being applied to the one person, Jesus. That's why we say that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. We have all of our, we have the, we, 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 this, a passage like this becomes the foundation for some of the ancient creeds when we hear that language co-essential and co-eternal with God the Father. This is the, these are the reasons why we see it. But in verse 2, we don't have the emphasis on the one person of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. We purposely now have an emphasis on God the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I want you to see, what Peter is saying is this, that your increase of grace and, and peace is multiplied through your knowledge of the person of the Father and the person of the Son. Can I say it like this? That your increase in grace and peace is multiplied through your communion with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that there is in the Word of God over and over this idea that the believer has communion with the triune God. We see this in passages of Scripture like, like uh, 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 13, verse 14, when we give our benediction, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you and above. Be with you. Again, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, communing with the Lord Jesus Christ at the level of His grace exercised. The love of God, communing with God at the level of his love being expressed. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit, communing with the Spirit of God on the basis of that communion that he gives, not only with himself, but now with the entire Godhead. You see, this is what Peter is saying. And you think he's just saying, hello, how you doing? I don't think so. I think he is planting within the soul of his readers preparation for all that is to come. And you see, it's this faith that we must protect against the false teachers. It's this faith that we must hold against those who are, mo- who are mocking this truth. It's this faith that we must continually grow in, as he reminds us in that last passage here in 2 Peter chapter 3. And so, my brothers and sisters, grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word. How we thank you for the realities of grace and peace. How we thank you that these things are ours, Father. Not only through the activity of faith within our hearts, Father, but even before that, through the activity of your eternal purposes. Brought home to us, Father, through the work of the Spirit, making application of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so, Father, we ask and we pray now that we would truly, uh, Lord, just for a few moments, enjoy this thought of grace and peace. But we also ask and pray, Father, that it would be the foundation of a new phase of prayer in the life of Nosset Baptist Church. That we would pray continually for the increase and the multiplication of all these Christian graces. That we would make use, Father, of the means of grace that you have ordained. That we would truly commune, Holy God, with you, the Father, with you, the Son, and with you, the Holy Spirit. Grant these things we ask, Father, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.